When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where we set out to uncover the good stuff, even when the world isn't always feeling so good. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called We've Only Just Begun. If you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. We get so many lovely comments and feedback every week, but please do give it stars, ideally five of them, and, uh, and a little review. Much appreciated. We have got some amazing guests coming up for you in this season. But back to today, the show's theme, given the iconic status my guest has in that particular world, is radio. In the early years of the BBC, there was a framed warning in the studio near the microphone that read, if you sneeze or rustle papers, you will deafen thousands. Unlike television in the UK, radio has no watershed time for explicit content. Over in Canada, however, you are allowed to say fuck on the radio at any time of day. Fucking right, eh? As long as you are speaking French, but not if you are speaking English. Zut alors. Producer Mike, by the way, is also a legend in the world of radio. He knows our guest today. So here is a favourite bit of radio trivia from Mike, the producer. Hello, podcast penance. It's producer Mike here with some handy radio facts. And I'm going to put my radio voice on for it. According to the United Nations, there are over 44,000 radio stations around the globe, servicing over 5 billion listeners or 70% of the world's population. In the Netherlands, from Boxing Day to New Year's Eve, Dutch radio plays the best 2,000, yes, 2,000, I've lived over there, this is true, best 2,000 songs of all time as voted for by the Dutch public. And every year that this has happened, which has now been for over two decades, every time the most popular song has been Bohemian Rhapsody. And over in Italy, the word tormentone Tormentone, spelt like torment. Tormentone, I know I don't speak Italian. That is the Italian for a summer hit song that is always playing on your car radio. Tormentone, I guess it's a bit like a panettone crossed with an earworm. Well, it's just shit everywhere. It's unbelievably disorderly. That's my guest today, Sean Keevney. Now, you may know this one already, but I like it. Because radio waves travel faster than sound waves, if you stand next to Big Ben with a radio, you will hear the bombs through the radio before you hear them in real life. In 1997, an astronaut by the name of John Brunsfeld 
called a car maintenance talk radio show from the Mir space station to complain about problems he was having with the engine. And this last one is stretching it a little bit in terms of it being something to do with radio, but I need to tell it to you anyway. So in 1939, after showing Snow White and the Seven Dwarves for the first time, Radio City Music Hall in New York had to re-upholster many of its seats due to children wetting themselves. Let's hope it was just wetting. Look at you in your penthouse loft suite. Yeah, it is. It's it's, it's impressive. Sean Keaveney presented The Breakfast Show on BBC Six Music for 11 years and The Afternoon Show for a further three, ably assisted by the equally loved Matt Everett. For many people, if you say Six Music, Sean's is the name that they think of. His last show was on 10th of September 2021 and his listeners were bereft. But in keeping with the spirit of his very last song on that very last show, which was We've Only Just Begun, things did not end there. He has since set up the very, very fast-growing Community Garden Radio. See what I did there? Fast-growing Garden Radio? Okay. And the accompanying podcast, Creative Cul-de-Sac. This, along with not one, but two other hit podcasts launched this year, are keeping Sean busy and, thank goodness, still on our airwaves. Sean and I talked about peaking late, turning 50, the north, the south, night shifts, six music, attention deficit disorder, drink, freelancing, crowdfunding, the BBC and podcasting. But I started by asking him about his decision to have a third child, I think it's fair to say, a little time after his first two. I'm back into the burning building, yeah. And uh, But she's she's awesome. She's she? brilliant. She's funny. She's, you know, she has... But now she's in the that sniper's alley of between two and five, I think when they're just ill every three weeks, you know? So it's like that. And I'd forgotten about that. And also for the first two years she was alive, she wasn't really ill at all because of, because of COVID. Cause you she know, was no, a hermit the, baby. Was she, yeah. was she a lockdown? Was she conceived in lockdown? No, no, she wasn't. She can't. She so arrived. I conceived. In... I've gone very. Was she conceived in lockdown? It's like a great Jane Austen, isn't it? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. um, union <laughs> was achieved. Uh, uh, no, she 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 arrived in October 2019 of of the COVID 19. So I imagine it was burbling over in the in the markets by then. Yeah. But um, yeah, by the time she was six months old, that was it. It was all all game over so that must be really weird i would because my kids were at the they, they'd both left home and were having a shit time because they'd gone to exciting places to do exciting things and then they had to just sit in their bedrooms doing nothing um although one of them came back here but that's another story they're on elastic sean you never lose them no matter oh, how hard God you try this is it forever yeah. It's a life sentence. But I was thinking, God, little kids, I know there's been stuff written about it, but that even the fact that her first kind of proper communication with the world was all through masks and hardly any people and stuff, is that, does that fuck up a toddler? I think it, I think it definitely does a, a little bit, if I'm honest. Like, she, but she's, she's, quite, um, she's quite a risk-averse little thing. She's, she takes her a while to warm up to people. So uh, unless she really knows you, then again, my dad's like that. 
Is it? You know, my dad's like that. And, and actually, I'm a very introverted extrovert. So, you know, it's probably a bit of DNA, but it's probably not been helped by all that. Yeah, it's probably part of it. An introverted extrovert. I think, I wonder if there's such a thing. Do you think there are really extrovert extroverts who just want to be on all the time and with Maybe there are. Like that. I, what's the name of the character now? It was um, Charlie Higson's character in one of those fast show things isn't it where he's that kind of really oh, annoying yeah. guy in the always office always on yeah <laughs> like, yeah on coke that. but not on coke yeah 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 it's like me so you've got the two older ones you've got a little one and you've i've heard you talking about the fact that you are going to be 50 this year yeah and when you talked about Sniper Alley, I thought that's where you were going with it because that's what everyone says. I don't want to piss on your chips, but um, everyone says about men in their 50s, that's where anything that's going to get you is going to get you. If you can get to 60, you can breathe again. So has that helped with how you're feeling about this year? No, no, I feel no. I feel, I feel, um, very nervous about it all of a sudden, <laughs> funnily enough. But um, yeah, I mean, I've literally got about six six weeks to go till I turn. And um, and I've heard that. I remember hearing it on Jeremy Vine show. That's Sniper Alley. And here I am in Sniper Alley, 53. If I can get to 60, I'll survive. And um, yeah, it did, didn't fill me with great hope. Because, you know, you, you don't, you can be, I don't want to, neither do I want to uh, tempt fate. You know, I mean, good God. Uh, I, I've, I, I've got a good feeling that I could get all the way to 90. Is your dad still going strong? Yeah. And your mum? Yeah, they're both still going. Uh, they, but they are just you took really strong young. out there. They're not going strong. They're just going. <laughs> they're going. They are going pretty strong, actually. I'd say. I mean, the, you know, the the sort of um, not without the their issues, but but then they had me really young, so they're not that old. They're seventy one, seventeen, seventy one. That was it, because my dad is seventy nine, and I'm a bit older than you. So my, my dad had well, he had my brother who's older in it, at twenty two, I think. And in those yeah. days, that wasn't so unusual, was it? No, it was it was the done thing, wasn't it? Like, but I've talked to my uh, my about eldest you about going this going again at whatever you were oh, forty eight when you became a dad for the third 40, time. Yeah, forty seven I was. Yeah, and but weirdly, it's we've got precedent in the family because my granddad on my mum's side, my uh, my grandma, obviously they'd have to do it together. They had my uncle Martin. He's only two years older than me, so I think my granddad was forty-five when 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 he arrived. You know, and it's and it was nineteen seventy. So when my nanny went to my grandma went to doctors, saying I'm feeling weird, they thought it was wind. Wind. And then they thought it was witchcraft because <laughs> they were like windy witchcraft. You're, you're, yeah, <laughs> I remember I went to school with her. I think. Um, you know, it's like, you know, what you can't, no, you can't be. Oh, you are. And I think she was the only geriatric mum for about 100, 200 miles, you know. Really? That's funny because I've got an Uncle Martin, an Uncle Martin who went again. He's got kids who are like 20 years older than his next lot of kids. And my kids have got a little brother who's eight now and my kids are in their 20s. Yeah, so we've okay. got what I believe is fashionably known as a blended family. And there, there was a 16 year age gap between my son and his little brother. What's the age gap between your little? It's a bit smaller, like uh, the oldest is 11 years older than Elsie, I suppose. And, you know, Wilf is like 
uh, like nine years older than her sort of thing. So, But it is quite considerable, isn't it? That's a big age gap. It's really, if it's any consolation, it's a really nice thing as they get older. My three, ki- well, my three kids, my two kids and their little brother are incredibly close and there's oh, something yeah. really sweet. I don't know if yours, yours were just a bit too young. My, mine, when he was in sixth form, had a baby brother and he was really good with him. Yeah. And he'd invite, he'd be like, do you want to meet my baby brother? And my son <laughs> would be all like competent with a baby and all these girls yeah. were like, oh, you know, okay. uh, yeah. It was, I don't know if it was, I don't, I'm sure my son wasn't thinking of it in that way but I was aware that <laughs> yeah, it had yeah. that kind of um yeah impact Effect. yeah so yours, yours are a bit too young to have used it to pull basically I know yeah so. I, don't, I wouldn't put it past them though you know especially <laughs> the eldest but I, I think that you're right I think that it, what it's really lovely watching that relationship develop and knowing that okay I'm an old bastard and I might drop off the perch at some time but hopefully they'll always have each other you know which is sweet it's a nice way to look at it. So you're going to bob off, but you'll have left something behind by way of consolation. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just go, I'll just disappear into the toilets of a local pub and just be absolutely, you know, I'll just pass out and that would last anybody sees me. That's the dream. It's better than dying in the toilets at the BBC, I'd say, don't you think? <laughs> That's a terrible way to go. And is there, um, so it will come on to the BBC in a minute, but you're um, the age thing. So... Do you ever think about, I, as you probably know, only got into stand-up because someone a lot older than me told me I was young when I was 45 and John was Rivers. thinking about doing it. Yeah, I thought I'd let you say the name. And um, I'm going to let you just fill in bits, if that's all right. It'll be like a quiz or whether you've done any research on me. I've done lots on you. Normally when I say I'm going to research a guest, I think I'll listen to one episode of their podcast. You've got three bloody podcasts for yeah. starters. So even just listening to one of each of your podcasts, it's exhausting person to research. Um, <laughs> but in terms of... Um, age I now look back at 45 and think that was not old to get into doing something new because now at 53 I think 45 is young yeah and I have no doubt when I'm looking in the mirror and thinking oh I'm a bit fat or I'm a bit flabby or this has gone wrong or why haven't I done that I try and remind myself that like when I'm 60 I'll look back at this yeah. and go do you right in the thick of it so does a bit of you is a bit of you looking on going but 50 isn't it isn't really that old yeah I mean I I definitely think so because First of all, I'm, I must encant the word of the great soothsayer Baz Luhrmann at this point, um, because I think he said something like that in sunscreen, didn't he? You know, with that voice that he has, and he said something like, when you look at photographs of yourself now, you'll think you were gorgeous. And he's like, yeah, Baz, go Baz. But I, I also, I'm lucky in a sense, because I, the way I see it is look, that I am very late to every party. You know, I am a very late developer in every conceivable way. And I consider it a really good luck thing that, because the the people I look most, uh, I I get most upset about, and I've I've heard you talk about this, you're an an empath. I've heard you coughing along with Angela Barnes. (laughs) Uh, And I am very much like that. To a to an extent that it's a fault and it's not helpful a lot of the time, but you know, I I I just I definitely think that it's there are some people who peak so young uh, and have and they you know off they go at the age of nineteen or something or twenty two, especially starting in the old days with music and stuff. And you think, Christ, mate, where are you going from there? And I never, I was never like that. I sort of bumbled along. And uh, came to things very late. And I think I came to the world of work quite late. And then I came into broadcasting quite late. You know, somebody like Chris Moyles would have been, oh, you know, I was making tea for Timmy Mallet when I was nine. And then I got my first show at the age of 11. And it's like, fuck that. I was like nearly 30 by the time 
I found what the thing that I wanted to do sort of, and, and on it went from there, you know what I mean? So I, I definitely think that 50 here, then again, you've just basically given me a death sentence and said you're in sniper's hour, <laughs> you might not make it past the end of the year. And that yeah, but might you be might. right. You also might make it. Thanks for that. That's yeah. good to know that yeah. I might still make yeah. it. a 50, 50 chance. Odds uh, on you're going to make it. But you know, if assuming I do, I, I sort of think we're in a good game here because you know, as long as you can sit up right in front of a microphone, and you can press, you know, record or whatever it is. Yeah, we could be. I, I, could, I intend to be doing this until they just don't listen anymore. You know, so I, I, I consider myself to be pre-peak at this point. Pre-peak. You see, that's the opposite of what I say to young comics. So you know, when you see people doing really, really well, young. And everyone's getting really competitive and going, why haven't I not got that? And they're, mm. and I was, most of those people won't be famous for like 30 years. It's very yeah. few people who manage to have that sort of career longevity. And, and there's something about, you'll have met these people as well, but having worked in on the other side of the cameras for so long, post-famous is a very difficult thing to be. Yeah. Whereas the good thing about us is by the time we're post-famous, we'll be dead. So we don't have to, <laughs> we'd have to live with that humiliation. We've timed it. Yeah, I think we have. <laughs> Just I really, right. I think we have just by accident, you know. <laughs> but I, the, this is the, the, the mantra to, to my kids. And they repeat it back, parrot it back to me now with a sort of eye roll. Don't peak too soon. You know? Do you know when they're 28 still living at home, you'll be like, peak sooner. <laughs> Yeah, don't forget to peek. Yeah. That's the other thing. Have a little peek. Yeah, for fuck's sake. Peek yeah. out of my top bedroom, you little bastard. I was going to put some weights up there or something, you know, to keep me, keep my chest going. Yeah, you don't want to be telling your kids that. Let me just, word to the wise. Word oh, to the, I've only just got rid of my oldest one. Not got rid of, he's still alive. Yeah. He's a zookeeper down in Devon. But, he's, uh, but yeah, at nearly 25, he finally actually flood the nest okay. and even now he got he got some he's a he's a mammals keeper and he got mm. some mammal that is in his room not a human mammal but some sort of furry pet and then he was like i was like it's a big responsibility a pet and he was like yeah but if i end up living at home i was like you and that opossum are not living in this yeah. this is it now you, you'll do what what if i lose my job i said you'll do what we all did when we lost our jobs and get another job yeah and keep paying your rent exactly so you know the door is shut now the drawbridge is up you're not coming back um but is your so in terms of the getting into things late and peaking late do you sometimes feel so i know i could not have been a stand-up when i was young so i mm. did not have the self-esteem the confidence or my voice i didn't really yeah. know what my voice was i had no idea who i was I still struggle along with those existential questions, but I simply was not equipped to do it. Yeah. And did it take you that long to get to the point where you could do it? Do you think was that was that? Did you did you land in it at the time at which you were able to give it a good a good go? Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think the voice thing is in whatever you whatever your creative endeavour. You know, whether it be you a musician or a comedian or a writer or a broadcaster that's a, a, a it's quite an evasive thing isn't it the, the the voice it's like um difficult to land on and i when i first started in broadcasting it was purely by accident because i used to write radio ads and 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 by luck one of my old mates who worked at that station that i worked at moved to this place in london called xfm and he was like just it was really a sort of idle chat that we had and he was like oh you know do you fancy doing overnights on XFM instead of doing your, your job, you know, and he was quite persuasive about it. He was like, it's better than the job you're doing now. And you, you're good. You're funny. You're going to be, you'd be great at it. And you'll, you'll climb up the ladder. And I really bought all that crap, you know, 
and and what well, he was right you know in the end i did but it took like it always does with me in ages but but it, it was a hard road because like you say i was still relatively young i was like 28 or 29 and uh, i was supplanted from my the bosom and brethren brethren of the north and i still used to go up every chance i got boom like you know homing pigeon boom back to me with my dad's house you know out with my mates up north in lee so i wasn't comfortable in london for the longest time and and it those two or three years were were hard because it, first of all doing uh, a regular show at 3 a.m uh you know monday to fridays will fuck you up that's you know? not good for your mental health that's it's not sort good of for your shift. mental health it's not at all and it's not good for your your psyche circadian rhythms and your body and everything it completely mess and then you're having a few drinks on top of that because you're a functioning alcoholic essentially and you feel were you a functioning alcoholic do you think i don't think there's any were about it to be honest i've got a gin and tonic behind the screen here and um <laughs> i've not because the sun is not yet over the yard arm don't drink more kids and never leave home that's the advice from sean keevney <laughs> thanks for coming on the show that's it top and bottom of it <laughs> um i mean i i i think i've got a, a a functional relationship with alcohol but occasionally it does tip into the I want to give it a rest for a week or something. Do you think so lockdown you... made that worse? Because it did for a lot of people, I think, because literally what else was there to do? Yeah, I think I think I saw it happen to a lot of people. I, I think I, I still have my six music job throughout all that, which was great because I, I, and at the beginning of it. So you were it, still going into the studio? I was, yeah. Oh, God. I was, still I was going so in. jealous of people like you at that point, just having to go. I kept doing radio, but they always let us as contributors just do it from home. I was yeah. like, please, will somebody make me go anywhere to do I want anything. to see other people yeah. I know it's so it's so stressful and so weird all of that time but weirdly no I think for that reason I mean I probably did you know neck a few more margaritas than I ordinarily would partially because I met Katie was trapped with us and she mixes a good one you know I was gonna um, say you've gone straight for you've gone straight for margaritas you're not just going for a, a chilled beer Oh, you know me. I mean, I've been down south for a long time now. I've got very refined tastes. And you went a bit Australian then. Which I did. I don't know why. Whenever I talk about alcohol, I go Australian. Yeah, for tinny. Forex. Kesselmain Forex, please. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I, I think I, I we'll probably circle back to bloody drinking at some point. But I, I think that I'm on just about the right side of it. And But I think when I was younger, I definitely drank more. And and But that was it. Doing these overnights... And struggling along, trying to find out what the fuck I was any good at and what was I going to do. But, but I, I don't know. I just didn't, because I'm a bit ADD as well. And I know you've talked about that on this before. Yeah, I heard you talking, unfortunately, about yeah. the fact you're waiting for a, a diagnosis for that. Funny, just just literally just sent an email to the doctor about it. So I'm hoping for so the best. Mate, they're probably going, well, if you remember to send the email, you've not got it. It's a test. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to save swats. you 1,500 quid now, mate, because you replied to the email. <laughs> exactly. It must be some some other problem you've got because it's not ADD. But it took me, it's literally taken me seven weeks to reply to that email. Okay, maybe you're just going to scrape in then on that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, but it, my executive function is it doesn't function. So... And we we noticed this more and more. Me and my wife, and we're trying to work out what the what's happening in the near to semi distant future. I can't think like that. I just can't think into the future at all. So in a way, it protected me a bit. I think when I first came to London, and I was first of all doing broadcasting because I I didn't get eaten up by what ifs. What if this doesn't work? You know, what job will I do if I can't do this? I sort of didn't think about it. And luckily. I, I made a career in it, you know. I, I think if I'd been a little bit more, a bit less ADD, 
I might not have done it because I, I might have gone, fucking hell, I can't work. This is a terrible wage. And why am I living in London? I, I'm, I'm scraping by the bones of my arse. I could go up north and get a job, you know. But I didn't do any of that. I just carried on like I do in life, Callie. I just trundled on, unthinking most of the time, just hoping that things got a bit better. For an unthinking trundler, you're quite the role model. I think they'll be. <laughs> you're absolutely at the heady heights of yeah of the trundlers. Because my son is um as, he's autistic and was diagnosed quite late in life, but I absolutely knew he was autistic and try, I was a real sort of guardian reading. We'll love him through it, and who needs labels? Not realizing he needed a label and he wanted a label, and it was helpful for him to know. So, I, so that was a, a lesson to me. I'm not saying anyone listening needs to get their kid diagnosed if they don't want to, but it helped yeah. my son. And he got diagnosed at 16 finally. And they sort of gave him the diagnosis almost as, as a sort of an offer. They said, look, this is what we found, but you don't have to take this label or this wow. diagnosis. You've got to 16 without it, yeah. but this is what we this is what we have found through. And it took about, you know, 18 months on the NHS to get it all done. But what did come out of those assessments, which was a real surprise to me and explained a lot, was that he had ADD. And he's quite extremely ADD. He's right sort of on the lighter end of autism, but he's at the kind of heavy end of ADD. And I didn't realise what it was. I didn't realise the difference between ADD and ADHD because he didn't present as what I thought ADHD yeah. was, a bouncing off the walls. And But it's a very similar thing to what you're saying about that kind of executive function and the capacity to sort of take on those those things at once and those what to me feels like normal life admin and, and just sort of growing up. And it, yeah. it, it isn't just that for him. There's there's some wiring that is very different to anything I can understand as someone sort of neurotypical. But what makes you, what, what are the things, so it's executive function that makes you think that you've, you've got this and what are the, what, how does it show itself? I mean, definitely when, when I'm under stress <laughs> and that's been quite a lot of the time. Well, but definitely the last... the last two years, for starters. Yeah, you the, know. A baby and the pandemic. And then, you know, you sort of lose your job as well, and that that's and then it throws you into a sort of chaos. You And then you try to spin a lot of plates. Um, and that's great, you know. It's great to have an opportunity to make, to, to make things and to work and to have an audience. It's really great, and I would never take it for granted. It's a beautiful thing. But to answer the question, when I try to do too many things... I become sad, I become angry and depressed and I become, uh, I start to withdraw because I can't, you know, because it, it's all shot through with a lot of other things. Like you, you feel, you feel embarrassed, you feel humiliated really that you can't do things that you think should be normal. And you, you watch other people struggling on your behalf, you know, watching your wife book a fucking holiday for, for you and, you know, your older kids and, and booking the hire car and stuff and you sort of no help because you you really everybody instinctively knows who knows you very well that you're shite at these things and when you try to get involved with them you make them worse and so it, it all that sort of thing is very clang add i was talking to my mate uh, mark at the weekend i was with him and he's he's a bit older and he's done all right for himself he's got a bit of land and he built this colossal barn right and and it was like a sort of mini engineering project, right? Now, he's done a lot of more in, impressive things, like, you know, he's written amazing songs and stuff like that. But the thing I'm, I'm arguably most impressed by that he's done is build this fucking barn. Because it's like, I was saying to him, like, literally, I couldn't, I was like, so are you doing? Have you, have you been trained to do engineering? And he was like, no, you know, I just thought about it. And it's logic, Sean, it's logic. You start with, you know, 
this corner and like how big are the machines you want to put in there and i was just looking at him like it's a different language because what you're talking about is sequential logical thought okay it needs to be this big because this is how many things i want to fit in it this is where the posts go i was like that's like chinese to me i i cannot think like that in a sequential calm measured one thing then the next way i i see a problem and it's like all swimming in front of me like that and whether that's like talking to hmrc or filling in a passport form or building a, a barn it's all the same shit to me it's like that's where i live in a sort of soup of chaos so his um, barn was the uh, was a metaphor for for everything you can't be in your soup of chaos yeah and I was going to say, as you were talking, maybe it's something to do with the kind of right brain, the creative brain. But actually, if you're saying that he writes songs and God knows what else, so he's obviously a creative guy who can build a barn. Which makes me almost Which makes hate me him. ask, is he single? <laughs> you, so you can build barns and you're creative. You're not boring. Yeah. And you've got amazing. your own land. You're like a unicorn among humans. Yeah, he's the best kept secret. But that's that, you know that sort of thing. He's, he's so ADD apparently, and as is, and this is the new one that I touched on a bit earlier. Um, is I didn't know this until a few weeks ago. Is like high on the empathy scales apparently. So if you're ADD, you really not does this doesn't necessarily make you a great person. It's just that you are hyper aware of other people's moods, hyper aware of other people's. Uh, comfort or discomfort which makes social situations difficult sometimes and again i was talking to somebody else with add the other day and they were like are you an add anonymous now or something i think we're going to start one yeah i think that's a great i don't think there is another aa so i think there's i think it's going if you want the title god yeah (laughs) Yeah, maybe i should do another podcast don't do another (laughs) podcast sean um but that you know that that's it like where they were saying i find it difficult to be in social situations sometimes because you, you can't just focus on one person. You worry, you sort of you can see somebody out in the corner of your eye who looks like they're not talking to anybody, and then you you fucked then because you're sort of thinking about oh should bring the, should we bring those people in? I don't remember the name though because I'm a bit ADD. I don't remember things very well. You know. So you're just stuff. a shit empath. You're trying to bring people in. You're calling them the wrong name. The people you're talking to are like, what's wrong with us? I'm making everybody feel like shit. (laughs) Jesus Christ, this is meant to be a feel-good podcast. Namaste, motherfuckers. There is actually a term, I think it is hypersensitive. I'll look this up and we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, And it doesn't mean you're oversensitive uh, and a snowflake, but I think there is an actual condition uh, which is called hypersensitivity, where you literally are overly receptive to everything going on, like being an over-empath. And uh, a friend of mine has that, and she told me that's what it was. I was like, I know you're a bit sensitive. She went, no, I literally have this thing. And she's amazing. She'll pick up stuff. You know, someone will post something on Instagram that looks quite happy, and she'll be like, I can tell something's going on with them. I'm like, why? They just put some tulips on there on a dining table. She's like, no, 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 I can see that. And I'm like, how? And then she'll be right. And I'm like, how do you do that? She'd have been drowned as a witch back in the day. And rightly so, Helen. That is exactly what my mate was saying. was like, it's, it's it's too much sensory information coming in if you're at a party or something there's too much to to process whereas i guess some people might be on the other end of that scale you know and, and might be like seen as a little bit insensitive oh he didn't seem bothered and then he just walked off we're, we're too much the other way and that doesn't make us brilliant in social situations a lot of time for all these reasons yeah it's are you a, a crowd pleaser 
Definitely, yes. I'm definitely a crowd pleaser. I'm a people pleaser. And I've worked really hard to get not very far when it comes to, uh, you know, what they say in, in, in therapy, you know, policing your boundaries and all that. I'm not very, I'm still to this day not very good at it. So, yeah, it, it, it's such a nightmare. And I, the, the alarm bells used to ring when I was a teenager because all my friends told me a few years after we were teenagers, you're always a bit, you always really fucking annoyed us, Sean, because we would ring you on a Friday night and we'd say, are you coming out? And you'd say yes. Uh, but you, you rarely would because you'd have, you'd go out, you'd have to go out with Claire with your first girlfriend. And we'd all know that was what would end up happening, but you wanted to, you wanted to please us. You wanted to tell us you were going to meet us, but you, you usually failed. And it was like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. You're mixing up flaky with empathetic. I think that's just... <laughs> I'm just trying to make myself out. sound On better. the Venn diagram of lazy and shit, you know, with an actual diagnosis. There's quite Love an overlap. This. This, I've, right, I've written this one, don't lazy and shit, and there's me in the middle. Christ, don't like I used this. to say to my son when he got his autism diagnosis, he would dip in and out of that for convenience. Sometimes yeah. it'd be like, well, like, the reason I haven't done the dishwasher, it's my um, ADD and my autism. I'd be like, is it? And then another time I'd be like, well, that's really hard for you, isn't it? Because you're autistic. He'd be like, don't you be throwing my diagnosis. Ah. And I used to think, mm, Venn diagram of lazy teenager and neurodiversity there's definitely an overlap sorry national autistic society if you're going to get me cancelled but as a mother of someone who's gone through this for 25 years with him but there is um it must be an interesting thing then going because the thing about what we do in any case what you do on air it is you and it's you in a very sort of intimate conversation with your many many listeners and and it, but it's also very much on our shoulders everything right we create the content we put it out we turn up at the right time we research stuff of course we've got amazing people around us but it is kind of us driving the train yeah. and there's not a lot of um external support or structure or anywhere to fall and we've got to keep earning the money i'm just trying to give you a panic attack on air um but <laughs> he's crying now dear listener but is it that must be a really in for you to go freelance at this time in your life post the pandemic with a little kid and with all the awareness you've got about your potential sort of wiring is that a bit of a head fuck yeah. is it as bad as i've just described yeah. <laughs> is it cathartic <laughs> or here's another venn diagram or is it just going to take me out of this window that i'm, I'm in cahoots with a therapist what i do is people finish the podcast <laughs> and i just pass them straight on uh, and that's how i fund the podcast <laughs> It'll be £130 an it's hour. It's a lot more than Patreon, I tell you that. <laughs> I mean, in, answer, in short answer, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, it's funny how far how it, how it's everywhere though, Kelly. Because I've just literally, I've just had my hair cut. You couldn't tell, but Northern Neil who cuts my hair, and and out it came with him. He's wired almost exactly like I am, and he's the same. He's he's gone from a a secure job to like this crazy sort of living where he's sort of looking after his youngest whilst he's cutting hair and trying to earn a living. And so that what I find the hardest thing of all is, is, is that actually is childcare and work at the same time. Mm -hmm. That is for me, the ultimate nightmare because I, I can't multitask anyway very well and i'm not going to blame blame it on wiring or anything i'm just going to say that's me that's always been me i'm happiest when i'm sort of doing one thing at a time you know what i mean i'm really comfortable when i, I couldn't I, I i'm never happier and maybe this is just normal 
But I'm one of those people who you look you look at the diary for next week. It's not happened for quite a while now, and you say there's only a couple of things in there. Oh, right then. Okay, well that's that's good. You know, I could take maybe I can drop the youngest off at nursery, drop the kids off at school, and then I might have a cup of coffee in in the afternoon and read my book for a bit. You know. That's describing everybody's paradise, I'm sure. But then there are other people at the other side of that who just love being busy and just love multitasking and love taking on other people's projects and busy, busy, busy. But that ain't me. I, I, I think I'm the opposite of you in that regard. I'm to- I've managed to give up a sort of board level career to be just as busy as a kind of bumbling along creative i'm the only person who's managed to make this into some relentless machine of productivity most of it going nowhere and shouting out of an open window but so busy i'm about to get a puppy just because i will not have time to work as hard as i do when i have a puppy it's like enforced play and yeah so i mean it's the opposite and i think that maybe between us we're a normal human do you think i say this a lot you know i mean i think that a lot of marriages are like that you know me and my wife are like that and we've become we're in the we 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 agree on really important things but we're very different in a lot of other ways and it's like and often i end up saying look on this point i think that the right thing to do is somewhere right in the middle between our viewpoints you know and it usually is but but yeah i think i've heard about that compromise thing some people are doing what's it like never catch on <laughs> I don't never catch so. on it's not caught on here yet <laughs> but but yeah, i think that to be to be approaching sniper's alley to uh, have gone back in the burning building to have been uh, sort of removed from removed i sound like a dictator in a in an african state <laughs> uh, you know to to not be working for the man anymore and to be spinning all these plates it has been a hard few months it's been a rewarding and hard few months but people keep telling me don't worry, the first year of being self-employed is a fucking nightmare and then you get sort of a bit more into it and it, it calms down a bit. I'm reserving a silence on that because I don't want to I saw really, your face really, then yeah. because I'm an empath. I immediately read your faces. <laughs> That's a lot of bullshit, Sean. Never mind. Good luck. Do you know what? I just think with all these things, because I've been freelance on and off in my career. I had a spell of it when my kids were little and I've been doing it again for the last three or four years. And there are so, it definitely the good outweighs the bad. I would not for any money go and work for anyone again. And I do, I would like to say, still get asked to do sort of media jobs that would be much more secure and sort me out for, to be able to retire in a couple of years and stuff. I just don't want to do it. But I think the challenge of what we do is that it does require, it's so hard to let go and still be productive. So to find yeah. the balance between what you just described, your ideal life, yeah. the one I seem to just fall into, even though I don't really feel like it's what I want, but to manage to just be a normal person with balance, knowing when to shut off things, knowing how to get enough stuff done to be successful, it's really bloody hard. And what you don't have is that thing you have when you go into a building where you work with the same people every day, which is a bit of a leveller, where you yeah. go in all sort of neurotic about a thing you're doing, or can I do this, or how's it? And then you just see other people around who are just normal. And you're like, oh no, like we're all just normal people, yeah, yeah. just sort of making it up as we go along, and I feel better now. But you can really get in your own head, I think, when you're freelancing because there's no there's no one to sort of balance that out. Even though you've got people you work with, they're not in that sort of team, walk in, hang out with them. They're just in yeah. your orbit sort of people. That's that, that. I do miss that a little bit. I miss the office and stuff and because I used to love, especially at six, like back in the heyday. You were before. in Wogan House, weren't you? Which yeah, had its yeah. own sort of specific atmosphere. 
Yeah. And yeah. it was lovely. And I still get to go in sometimes. My past still works, unbelievably. And I do do bits of work. Get sort of paper clips and staplers and I stuff. Do. I really yeah. do nick yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, please excise that immediately from the record. I don't <laughs> yeah, nick stuff Yeah, because our listeners all. are paying for that. That's why people I, I, like you making the BBC get cancelled. I only, I took 11 paper clips because I needed them for work purposes. Yes. But uh, but I do miss that, uh, that um, sort of community of, of those people. But, but the, uh, COVID changed a lot of that anyway i suppose but but also it's a love-hate relationship with with authority isn't it i i don't know i imagine that you might be a bit similar to me like i've always been a people pleaser i've always been so i'm, I'm a paradox because i'm a massive people pleaser never want to never consider myself a squeaky wheel at all you know mm-hmm. will you do that sean yep you know like really biddable yep oh no yeah okay yeah, well, you, you, you know, most people charge for that. No, oh, it can't be, it me two minutes. You know, like literally at six, it would happen a lot where a producer would go at the end of the show, oh, and such a body says, could you uh, just record that page of liners for uh, such a body? And I just wouldn't even think, yeah, of course, it'd take me two minutes. And I only found out after I'd left that most presenters charge. Yeah. And I'm like, dickhead. But that the point that I'm really making is is that despite I'm I'm giving myself giving the impression of being this you know biddable idiot when it and came someone down, from home not to take business tips as a freelancer somebody definitely don't do that because I'm talking out my ass um, but on the big things I couldn't I, I was the opposite it seems I'm not very good at towing the line mm-hmm. of of authority and of management especially when. I didn't agree with what they were doing or the direction they were going you know you know what they were saying or what they were saying i should think or say I, that it turns out that that didn't work for me at all it's and, an interesting and, fit for all that, all those years with the bbc then because i the nearest i came to working for the bbc was i worked for uk tv for about 18 months and they were a joint venture um 50 percent bbc so i would have to do quite a bit with the bbc um because that was half of the company and and the red tape and the ways of getting things done and the very distinct culture it had it just didn't suit me at all I remember thinking god if I'd ever actually ended up there which I nearly did back in my MTV days when Trevor Dam set up a sort of music specialist department but even then I loved the interviews with him and as soon as I got into HR I was like I can't be asked with this like this yeah. is you've lost me now all this bullshit process we've got to do but for someone who feels like you about sticking it to the man to then work for the man for a huge amount of your career that's an interesting paradox in its own right yeah it is and what you've just described i mean and, and that's not no new info the bbc is a milieu of uh, management sort of you know there's a lot going on there and you don't have to agree with it you, you just sign on because you think it's great oh, great to work for the bbc i was just where do i sign you know but um but it would to be fair it would be the same probably in, in just about any big structure that's why now I feel utterly liberated because I can do whatever the fuck I want. And like you say, it's it's scarier and it's and it, and it, it can drag you down sometimes because there's so much responsibility. But it's it's so brilliant as well, isn't it? And, it? and the idea now of thinking of a big station coming after me and saying, we want, we want you and we're going to pay you all this money I'm mature enough to understand what the what that the mm-hmm. other side of that equation is. You want my soul for mm-hmm. that money. That's what you want. 
and, you, and they've got time. it for a while, haven't they? I, I, got, I get paid the odd sort of retainer to do stuff in the industry and my old sort of executive thing. And I just get increasingly panicky when they've paid it. And like, I don't mind you saying you're putting me on it and we'll pay it like monthly because at any point I could go, don't worry about yeah. the retainer. But I had one recently, they had to do it, I won't say who, but they had to do it for like tax year purposes. So they were like, we're going to pay you this for the next year, but we've got invoices for it now. And as soon as I got the money, I panicked. I was like, <gasps> that means they've actually, got I, 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 they've got me now. And it's only, a, it's not, you know, it's like two hours a week. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I want to give you two hours a week. <laughs> I remember one of my one of my bosses at Viacom, um, and by this time, you know, I, I never, I wasn't the chairman of Viacom. So even though I was senior, I, had, I still had a boss. And I remember being with my boss um, going for lunch in Cannes in the days when I used to be flown to places wow. like that instead of, you know, being lucky to get on a mega bus home at three in the morning. But I remember being there and walking and we were looking down at a one of those beach terraces where we were about to have lunch, you know, work lunch. And I saw my first boss stand there and I went, oh, look, that's my first ever boss in telly. And this was my boss I was with at the time. And he said, I can't imagine you ever having a boss, Callie. And he was my boss. So I obviously always acted <laughs> like I didn't have a boss. And I used to sort of think, I, I always, you know, some people are really scared to sort of get to the point where their head's above the parapet. I only want my head above the parapet. Like I don't want, not, I don't mean in an arrogant, egotistical, I just mean I don't want to have to kowtow to somebody. Yeah. Or, or I don't want that own, I feel really... Um, like it's like people who the way in which people suffer sometimes for their I don't mean suffer for their art but the way in which sometimes people are treated at work you know like absolute shit bosses who are horrible to them not earning enough that is the fact that anyone is expected to live like that with yeah. the bit that is optional which is you might not be able to earn as much as you'd like you might there might be many things that are restricted but being a dick yeah is optional right and the fact that so many people do that and ruin other people's lives yeah. and I think I live in fear of anyone ever being able to do that to me because it's happened to me I've had I remember having the most awful boss when my my um, firstborn was was tiny uh, the, the person who was my boss for those months was just awful I left the, a really good job with a tiny baby because I couldn't stand it and had to get another job you know I had to still earn money and I remember being on the phone to her when my son was taking his first steps and that, and I'll never forget that his first steps were with that asshole boss. And I'm like, and, and I, that is the sort of thing I could never, I don't ever want anyone else to go through that. And I don't ever want someone to be able to ruin my life to no. the point that person did. That's, yeah, that, that, funnily enough, that story of watching your first children's first steps while you're having issues with a terrible boss. It, I, I'm not going to say that the person I'm going to talk about now was a terrible boss because they, they actually weren't. But, a similar thing happened to me when I was on paternity leave with my youngest and um, I ended up temporarily uh, inducing the ire of the Daily Mail because apparently I'd, I didn't even remember doing it, but I'd tweeted some pretty objectionable things they, they thought about our glorious leader, Boris Johnson. And um, they paid, obviously, a journalist to just go through everybody at the BBC's social media to find things that they could print. Mm -hmm. And uh, they found a few things that I'd said. And I ended up having this horrendous conversation with my then boss uh, in in the uh, the baby aisle of the Wilsden Sainsbury's uh, because I was I had to go in there late at night to get some nappies or something, and I'm having this ridiculous conversation about BBC due process, you know, and well, you actually you've kind of you've said a bit too much here and, and and I understood it too. That's the ridiculous thing because I, I, I am so compliant to a great extent. It was like, look, I'm sorry if, if I've overstepped a mark here, a BBC mark, I, I, I probably have, I understand that, but 
this is not the time and place to talk about it. And then it was, you know, you have to go on a sort of retraining therapy to uh, to reimmerse yourself in the BBC way. And I, I don't want this to come across as me berating the BBC because I protect them more than like, like I protect my children, you know. But of course, the, I, I'm only saying it to illustrate the point, which is some people aren't really cut out to go, to fit within those lines, those corporate lines. And I wasn't, as it turns out. I thought that I was because I thought, who could be more of a fucking crowd pleaser than me? I'm not a squeaky wheel. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. But it turns out that isn't what I'm like. Mm-hmm. And I, I, ju- I like doing whatever I like. Mm-hmm. And at least I'm getting, I am definitely getting to do that now, which is brilliant. And that's the bit that I do think with all the, when I went quiet, when you said about the self-employed, bits of it, I don't, bits of it just morph into another challenging thing. But overall, there is a reason why neither you nor I, well, I won't speak for you, but I, I will on record happily say that there's no job in the world that I would take where it meant signing up with somebody on a salary ever again. I, I just wouldn't. And I know right, it's easy okay. for me to say at 53, I haven't had a, a job like that for a long time. So, you know, I can pedal along and be OK. I've still yeah. got to kind of earn money. Um, you are, it is interesting with the BBC that you are such a, you're such a kind of outspoken supporter of the BBC, right? So despite the fact that you're, you know, you leaving Six Music caused kind of national heartbreak, really. It had people felt really passionately about it. And your last show was, you know, that was a big old roller coaster of a, of a thing, even listening to it, let alone doing it. And that's a hell of a... Re- I know people who've come out of the BBC after many, many years. One of my best friends was at the BBC for 26 years, I think. And she now has retired at my age on a very nice pension. But she still... It's still really in her blood. Mm. And she feels incredibly strongly about it, even though she also left not on the... You know, it's complicated, right? It's like leaving a yeah. sort of marriage or something. So, so but you are... It, it is that... Your, what is your kind of position on the BBC now? What are your thoughts about it in light of all the all the kind of vilification... I think that I think that all that those things that I think as well, really, in a sense, which is it is a bit like um, it's a, I get I wonder sometimes there's a bit there's definitely a little bit of uh, we used to joke about this on the, on our program uh, Stockholm syndrome. Um, it, a lot of the time, people would be attracted to our program because of the music, and they didn't stay for me; they stayed for the music. And they hated me for a lot of the time to begin with and thought that I was a, a tool. But via the, the medium of Stockholm Syndrome, we ended up drawing them in before we knew it. They and were the music massive. was fucking good. The music was fucking good. And, um, you know, they became devotees by accident. And it's a bit like that at the B, but I see it with a lot of the people who are still at the BBC. I can see it with different goggles now. I'm out of it. That... You get an you get an impression. It's sort of inculcated, if that's the right word, into you over time, subconsciously and not deliberately or anything. That that it's the only game in town. That you get this sort of idea that, um, well, where else where else could you work? You know, where else, where else would you want to work? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's more here. the latter. I think it is more the latter. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing else. There's, it's the big. It's the big, It's the British Broadcasting Corporation. We've been going a hundred years. I mean, nothing else. And, and you get, you get sort of that soaks into your bones after a while, and you think, fuck, yeah, I shouldn't. I can't leave. I mean, eventually they asked me to leave. It's a bit different, but like, it, it's. But having said all that, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's still the greatest broadcasting organization in the world. It's still so valuable, and it's culturally, it's priceless. Never mind the price tags that the conservatives are constantly trying to press on it and say you're only worth this, you're not worth that much, 
and you could you've got to do it for less and you've got to do it for less it enrages me to think however sort of however i bumped out of the system it enrages me to think that this beautiful wonderful thing could get ripped out mm-hmm. of the the crown jewels of our culture because of something that nadine dorries is cooked up you know in a half-baked way while she's writing another shitty novel about ireland you know i i just can't imagine it and i can't bear it i can't countenance it so i'll always be on the front line with my banner you know and swinging a snooker ball in a sock saying no matter how many times they ask you to stop it because it's not helping the cause that's (laughs) the point i don't know i'm probably having (laughs) oh keeve needs sentiment positive about us again that's a step (laughs) back in the fight for survival (laughs) fuck is um in terms of the does it feel like a comforting place because it's funny isn't it doing what what we do the things we used to enjoy doing like listening to the radio watching the telly me going to stand up once it's your trade you have a different relationship with it and there are still like there are certain panel shows that I can't enjoy now I'm a comic because I've not been invited to be on them uh and then or there'll be ones I've been on and I fucked up and I can't watch them either in fact there's nothing I can watch anymore I just have to sit with a book but do you find uh watching or listening to the BBC is it a place of comfort for you yet or will it be again i I mean i think i got through it pretty fast i i I, there's definitely a period of time where it's hard when i mean it's having somebody's doing the show that you did a few weeks ago yeah it is a little bit like it's like someone sleeping with your wife when you've not even packed your suitcases it really is it's like well at least wait till i've got out the fucking door before you start having sex you know yeah it is a bit like that i mean luckily craig charles does the show that i used to do and he's been very nice about you hasn't he in the press that couldn't have been kinder we are we're we're good mates you know we we always were and he was pretty broken up when because i think he thought he didn't know until quite late in the day the show that he was going to be doing (laughs) and when he found out it was mine he was like oh fuck no so there was a lot of conversation between us we're we're still mates It, it was nothing about that but yeah i still find it difficult to listen to him because i because that is it's a bit i suppose it's a bit soon you know and and it's my it was my show for Mm. a long time um and and anyway six six music and i were probably going on slightly divergent paths anyway it's one of the reasons i'm not there anymore musically and um and pitch wise the way that they do things you know is is different to when i got into it did you sort of wear it? For, I do think if you said to people my age and probably up to 15, 20 years younger than me, I think people would say, if you said, who do you think of? When you think of Six Music, who is it you think of? They would say you. Well, that's a very kind thing to say. I'd love to think that. But, uh, but you know, and, yeah, I felt like that. I, every Six Music Festival, me and Phil, my producer, or whoever, we were with Joe, our producers, and me and Matt Everett, we'd be... We'd be with the punters. We'd be out there, partially again because of our love, loving relationship with alcohol. Uh, we just see it as a great opportunity to go and mm-hmm. mix and mingle, and um, we thought it was great to be in there with the listeners who saved us in 2010. But, but yeah, so I, f- I find it sometimes, and, and I find it hard to listen to all kinds of things for, for the reasons that you've just described. Like I don't always like listening to Radmac because I think they're so good, mm-hmm. you know, and the, mm-hmm. and they're actually. And for a lot of years, I thought, oh, God, we're all a bit close, aren't we? We're all these, like, northern men of a certain age who are quite wry. And I thought, oh, God, they're really good, Brad, Matt, you know. And, I, and so I've got over that one now, you know. I can I can listen again. 
people like Greg James I'm like that with who on Radio 1 he, he helps me because he plays a lot of music I don't like mm-hmm. uh, because that is on Radio 1 it's for younger people but the, the way he does radio is just incredible you know mm-hmm. so there are definitely oh, p- parts of the networks that that I, I struggle to listen to and then a lot of radio is shit I will say that out loud a lot of radio is terrible um, and, 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 and so also that enrages me as well. I'll click around the dial. I certainly did it a lot last year when I was looking for a new home. And I was thinking, oh, could I work on this radio station? And I'd click on it and I'd listen for 10 minutes and think, this is fucking awful. Mm, I think it's most shy. radio stations are shit. But in terms, of, I think you might have been talking to Joe Lysett about about the idea of Radio Gaga, about, um, about weird, was that you Was it you guys talking about that as a concept, about yeah. weird radio? That's a great idea. So weird, I know you were yeah. just talking about it pissing around, but like weird, mad radio yeah. stations. Because there are so many, right? When you travel somewhere and you, you, know, you put on what would have been you know, the old school radio in a hire car and you're like driving through Nevada going, what the fuck is this radio station? I know, so. but I, I do. I got an internet radio a couple of years ago for Christmas, and I, I probably have just not navigated through enough radio stations because, again, because of my tiny brain circuits. But what I've noticed is so many of them are playlist radio now. So what I got it for was I I wanted to tune into Tennessee radio station and hear some hillbilly guy just talking about a fucking cow being trapped on the road. Yeah, I love that and then, shit. And then a lot of local adverts, you know. For yeah. Jezzer's tires. <laughs> but, but it's not. Most of them are p- like playlist radio. Yeah. And actually, of course, a lot of radio over here is sort of like that. Like a lot of the hearty, heart, ma- magic-y type, you know, stations, a lot of which I do listen to because I like the older music sometimes. But it's very playlisty and not there's not a great deal of personality. Yeah, there's, there's not, not and it doesn't feel of... like a community. It feels like something, it feels one up on, I'm, I've still only just got over the fact that with my second child, I wanted a natural water birth, which didn't go well, ended up in hospital as an emergency. But I reckon the reason that happened was because they put fucking magic FM on and I was in the b- <laughs> b- water bathing birthing thing and I was at the time I worked for MTV I was a young woman I was like what the fuck about me made you think so I'm there trying to birth in a pool with the midwife in control of the playlist and I, yeah I, I'm still with Michael there. Bolton singing how can I learn to exactly. live without you exactly the there was absolutely no way Celine Dion was getting me through that without an epidural um and and did you so just to talk about your your life now and then I want to ask you the three questions I ask everybody so um obviously no one's done any new podcasts for a really long time no. so I guess there was a gap in the market. Yeah. So, so you thought maybe I'll do one or two or three. It's a bit like, I, um, it's a bit like fly tipping into the Grand Canyon, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> so many. Fucking You've podcasts. just described my whole life. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. Hands off that. I want that. If I eventually bother to write my autobiography, I'm going to call it that. But I've actually, I'll be very brief with this sell because I'm not very good at selling. But what I've actually done by accident is is make sort of two podcasts and a a resting podcast and a radio station. So I do a a podcast called The Lineup, which is like a, a, a fantasy festival podcast. That's going nice. And you've had some great, you've great guests on that, and that's the fact. So the idea of that is quite simple. Is it, it is? It's like uh, it's a bit like the old dinner party thing. You know, it's like five uh, acts, living or dead, that you were put on your fantasy festival, and that's the sort of initial premise. But then from there, you go everywhere. You know, it gets very emotional. Who do you bring to this festival? What carbs are we eating? But you know, it's, it's a lovely thing. Oh yeah, we've had everybody from Shapiko Sandy to uh, Kiefer Sutherland to Ed O'Brien from Radiohead to. Uh, K Tempest, you know, we've, that's eclectic, right there. It's really, really good, and and I love it because it 
it, it, it's a contained thing, but then we always end up having really interesting combos. Um, I've started a new one for BBC Sounds, where my past still works, and that's called Your Place or Mine, Callie. And that's basically like, uh, I don't want to get off my sofa, but every week a different guest comes on and tries to sell me their favourite part of the world. The next one I'm going to record is with Michaela Strachan, right? Oh. People like that. Deliso Chaponda, great comedian. I wonder um, when Michaela's going to take you back I to the eighties. Do you think? I hope so. Hitman and her, Mister yeah. Smith, Warrington. I'd love. Where to go would back you there. take someone if you had to tempt someone? Lee, Lee, Lee Town Centre. Uh, six pie shops for every person. Really? Um, I've, I, I would go to. I want somebody to take me to Hawaii. Uh, that's where ah, I want to go. So basically, you're trying to cast around like who looks like they might be going to pick Hawaii. So. Then, uh, Take me there. I'll pick I... Hawaii if you can plug my podcast. Right, I would. <laughs> yeah, it's not a problem. I would take someone to the Lima Walkway at Paynton Zoo because my son would be able to explain a lot about Lima canopies. That would get you I... off your sofa, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. I've never been to Paynton Zoo. There you go. Uh, and the other thing was sure, sure, the one that you know about, Sean Keating's creative cul-de-sac, where I go sit in my top room going through all my shit old ideas and then I do it with a guest. But we actually, weirdly, that has been rested because the thing that we did alongside it was this Patreon radio show and that's taken over completely. So this is community garden radio. Yeah. Community garden radio and you sign up to our Patreon and you get other bits and bobs as well. But the main event is every Friday, one till 3 PM. We do, we do our live and fabulous dangerous radio show where I, you know, it's just like the aforementioned freedom. I play whatever I like. There's always a great music playlist, but there's a lot of, I would say, I mean, people, you know, they come for the, the warmth. They stay for the swearing. And there's an awful lot. There is lot a lot of, of swearing. A there's lot quite of a lot swearing. of, there's a lot of, um, I would say, you know, satire. Uh, some of it bad, some of it acceptable. But also just chat and, and all the usual things we used to do on our old shows, like middle-aged shout-outs and all that. We, we've just got a lovely community of listeners and it's growing all the time. And that's the most gratifying thing of all the things I'm doing. There's this like bunch of, there's a few thousand of them now and they all communicate without me. They have a discord, you know, this kind of internet thing that they all chat during the week and, and they're all on Twitter together and stuff. And they're meeting up to have a few drinks. It's like, I think I've started a bit of a cult actually. I'm just trying to think if it sounds cool or a bit Trumpian, but I'm going to go cool. I think it sounds. Co- have they got guns? They're not. They're not armed yet, as no. far as I know. But there will be an uprising at some point. A class war so. that yeah. started by me. It's funny Amazing. you mention uh, the the orange one because his birthday is the same day as mine, but not the same year. Not the same year. It's always the bad ones that he managed to get through Sniper Alley, didn't he? Without fucking flies sticking to him. Um, and is there, in terms of your... So the Community Garden Radio is the the thing, the Patreon thing, the thing where you do whatever the fuck you like. There was a book written, God, it's over 20 years ago now, by someone called Tr- Charles Handy called The Elephant and the Flea. And it was the idea back then that we would all recreate our working lives to sort of jump along like the flea on the elephant as opposed to needing to be the elephant. And it's what you've done. You've fucked off. The BBC was the elephant and now you are a filthy parasite. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, you. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, I mean, I would... What would I? I, I? I mean, I would say, um, you know, 
there are, there are there are sort of more personal ones you know there are ones that i probably wouldn't i, I, I wouldn't go back to uh because of ptsd uh, and things like that you know like literal you, ptsd well i would say yeah actually you know like um you know moments that you you realize that you've made a mistake and you can't reverse out of it. So what are you going to do next? You know, there've been those kind of Damascene moments, but I'm actually going to land on a slightly lighter one, which is uh, when I was 17, a long time ago, um, I was doing a communication studies air level and all my mates, my science mates used to call it poster studies because the first thing we ever did was draw a poster for a local fete and that was it then. We're like, this is not a real air level. Um, but I got the last laugh because look what I'm doing now, communicating. Yeah, um, and still doing I, posters for local fetes if they'll have you. I, yeah. I do, 500 pound a time now. You're like a pound shop Joe Lycett. <laughs> God, he's good. He's he too is. good. He's too good. So good. But um, so I'll never get up there. But um, but I did the for my GC for my communication air level. I had to do a project, and like a, vi a video po project. And I did one called the Complete Guide to Band Musicianship, and it was a hubristically titled and ridiculously bad, uh, sort of instructive video on how to be in a band because I was in this band called Mosque at the time. Yes, it's called Mosque. M S Q U E. Don't ask why. I don't know. Um, and, but the, the Madamacy moment was I wrote to the lead singer of a band called The Wedding Present called David Gedge. He was my hero at the time. And I just said, oh, would you, would you allow us to video you and ask you what it's like being in a band? And I never expected anything from it. And he rang me up one day after Coronation Street and said, if you want to interview me, you can. So I interviewed him and it sounded shit. And he said, if that didn't work, you could come to one of our gigs and bring your video camera and you can film a, a an interview with us and so me and my mate Banksy did we went down Manchester International 2 hold on your mate Banksy yeah my no exactly not that one okay I was gonna say that's a bloody this is an amazing <laughs> namaste motherfucking moments yeah one of the one of the biggest artists of all time wow. so anyway so Rembrandt and me were uh, walking down the and and so and we did we we filmed them and it, it was like but the reason it's a Damascene moment I suppose when I look back on it is that that was my first taste of behind the velvet rope of, of talking to musicians and uh, interviewing them and realizing that I enjoyed that. I, en I enjoyed the access and I enjoyed the conversation. And I enjoyed being able to see the band from the side of the stage. And I think that was the moment for me when I realized I would like to do something like that for a living. And then 13 years later, you've got your shit together enough to actually start to do it. Because I'm, I'm what we said before, <laughs> yeah. don't peak too soon, but remember to peak. Yeah, I'm just, that is that is my life advice to you and your parenting skills. It's a layoff that don't achieve anything because they're going to have that covered. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and what is your favourite joke? Well, I mean, it's quite long. So I, I, can I give you the punchline to it rather than the joke? Or do you want the joke? I can get, well, I mean, if it, what, what do you think is going to serve the listener as well as, a, as someone who understands the audio medium? It's a joke that, that, that I tell every Christmas. And actually, the only reason I mention it is because it's probably the only joke that I can really remember. So, you know, I'm not very good at, at, at I mean, I could give you one of my jokes though, couldn't I? I Are you still doing stand-up? I mean, not no. right now, but generally... No, I retired you to public demand in 2017. <laughs> I always say, and uh, that's not, you know, that's not that far from the truth. Um, my my actual favourite joke that's not mine is is the one where the punchline is, um, 
you mean you're 38 and you still believe in Father Christmas? Um, I think I could leave that there, actually, because it's, it's a very tantalizing. What people can do now is they can write to me or email me if they want the full joke. And enclose £4 Patreon contribution. <laughs> so, fucking hell, what a hustler. Pretending it's... you haven't got any executive function. <laughs> Here's one that I, it's I like made. Double up glazing there. sales pitch instead of a joke. That's it, yeah. I've made people feel sorry <laughs> for me and then I fucking fleece them. Can they have a readout of the joke for 200 quid? Yeah, exactly. You go to my memo page if you want me to read the joke. It'll cost you. But um, I, I did do this. I'll tell you what, this, this might serve you as well. When I was on music and before the lockdowns and all that, I was telling this joke to the producer uh, off air. And I said, I put the mic up and I was like, can I tell that joke on air? And he said, to be honest, it's a little bit blue for on air. So what I did was I told the joke with the mic down and then I raised the, the, the microphone so everybody could hear the laughter. And I said, if you want to hear the joke, write to me and send me a stamped address envelope and I'll write it on there and send it to you. And about 200 people did. Really? So to write the joke out again and again. And the joke was simple, Kelly. It was, let me try and get this right. Um, police recently arrested a surgeon uh, in, in our district because he was doing backstreet circumcisions in a local pub. Um, police said they were acting on a tip-off. It was, I, I sort of slightly mis, mis, mis said it, but it was, that was the joke, basically. And so you weren't you, allowed to say that. No, that. You see what I mean about the man I telling do. you what you can and can't do. If tip-off's off the menu, where the fuck are we with our creative freedom? So, you. uh, well, you've said Thank it you. now on Namaste, motherfuckers. Although we did have to asterisk the C and the K at a certain point because we weren't getting listed anywhere. Like I was like, I am not asterisking, motherfuckers. And the people were like, well, you know, they can't ever put you in the top this and the top that. And no one. And I was like, yeah, okay. After a <laughs> Yeah, I was like, let's put some fucking asterisks in it then. That's fine. Um, so, um, what if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening? What would it be? God, why does anybody want that? Well, I mean, obviously, now I re retract the don't peak <laughs> too soon advice. I'm going to redact that from all my future advice to the children. Um, but what I. I th I think, and again, I bet other people have said it, and it's pretty hackneyed and everything. But it's one of the ones that I listen to the most now, because I've learned very very much the hard way. Uh, and I never used to, you know, those things that you never used to understand until they've happened to you about twenty times, and then you go, "Oh yeah, okay, it is true that, isn't it?" And it's like when people used to say to me, oh, "Always listen to your gut," and I was like, "What the fuck does that mean, your gut? Well, you, eh, I don't know what you mean." You know, I don't, I don't even have a gut instinct. I remember saying that for years. Don't, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, you do. You fucking do have a gut instinct. And it's just that it's almost imperceptible sometimes, isn't it? But when, it, when there's something very important about to happen or something momentous that you're about to make a decision on or whatever, you'll know what I fucking mean. You just tune in to your guts and you see what they do. Because the number of times they've squirmed just before I've done something and I've really regretted it afterwards. So that would be mine. Namaste, that was Sean Keaveney. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, as part of Jeff the Wonder Dog's socialization plan, I am taking my puppy on a bus into town and we are going to test out the Big Ben theory to see if we can hear the bongs on the radio before we hear them in real life. 
And I think we'll also be testing whether Jeff can maintain his good toileting habits on the trip. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to rate, review and recommend the show. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to journalist, writer and author of the brilliant book, The Social Superpower, The Big Truth About Little Lies, Kathleen Wyatt. I don't know, just having been on the paper for so long, it didn't feel like real journalism because you know you have war correspondents jetting off to you know god knows where and there was me testing in an infinity pool in italy namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by jake yap i'm callie beaton until next time motherfuckers Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.